Jerry Prokopovich on Civil War Talk Radio. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Grimsley. Mark Grimsley teaches American military history with an emphasis on the Civil War at Ohio State University. He is the author of The Hard Hand of War, Union Military Policy Toward Southern Civilians, 1861-1865, a winner of the Lincoln Prize, and also the author of more recent books on the Virginia Campaign of 1864 and the Collapse of the Confederacy. We'll be back in a moment with Mark Grimsley. efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University. And with me today is Mark Grimsley, author of The Hard Hand of War and numerous other books on the Civil War. Mark, how are you doing? Just fine, Jerry. Thanks for having me on the program today. Well, thanks for being here. I guess we should start with a disclosure. Uh, you teach at Ohio State, but you also went there as an undergraduate, I understand. That's right, yeah. And uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, which is the same time I was an undergraduate at University of Michigan. So um, we are biologically programmed to have this uh, deep and lasting enmity, apparently. Uh, but perhaps we can get over that and discuss the Civil War instead today. Okay, well, we'll sure give it a shot. Uh, uh, the most recent encounter of those two teams did not go well for for my guys anyway. So we'll move on from that. What uh, brought you to write about the Civil War in the first place? Well, I was was born in uh, North Carolina and lived there uh, until I was about 10 years old and then spent another two or three years in Virginia before finally moving on to Ohio. And I think that what got me interested in the Civil War in the first place was, uh, was, was being a Southerner. Uh, uh, by uh, by birth, um, and what really turned that interest into a, a, a serious one was reading Bruce Catton's book uh, *Stillness at Appomattox*, uh, the third book in his trilogy about the Army of the Potomac. When I was uh, when I was 12 years old, uh, after that I was I was hooked, 
and I spent all of my teenage years reading everything that I could get my hand on, hands on uh, concerning the Civil War. I wonder how many people uh, interested in the war got started that way with Bruce Catton. Uh, did you read the uh, the American Heritage book with those beautiful maps uh, that, that Catton wrote uh, in the 60s? I sure did, and uh, and I probably saw that even before reading uh, A Stillness of Appomattox. Uh, he also did a, a good book, um, a kind of a, a, a children's book, uh, on the Battle of Gettysburg that I remember reading at an early age, too. But in any event, you know, Catton is just a superb writer and utterly captivating. Somebody once said that Catton wrote as if he owned the Civil War, and uh, that's, a, that's a pretty apt description. It is. There's... Uh... Uh, now, I can't remember who it was who said this. Uh, somebody was, was asking him a question about some detail in one of his books. How did he know it? And he got a sort of faraway look in his eye and said, uh, maybe I was there. Catton <laughs> uh, uh, certainly is, does, does capture the feeling of being there like few writers ever since have been able to do. Yeah. So uh, so that got you involved, and you, you went on to uh, make a career of it academically, uh, looking at the Civil War. Yeah, as it, as it turned out, that's, uh, that's exactly what... Uh, what happened? I didn't expect it to turn out that way. For a long time, people people kind of pushed me in the direction of uh, of an academic career to become a professor and so forth. And I, at, you know, for a long time, I was kind of vaguely insulted by that. Didn't really want to become a professor, but uh, but it turns out to be the right kind of life for me. Uh, it is uh, it certainly has its rewards. Well, the uh, growing up in the South. Did that give you a different view uh, of the war than the one you hold today as, as you've come to study it professionally? I think it really did. Uh, for one thing, my sympathies, I guess, just at a, at a, at a very basic level, were with, uh, with the Confederates. And, um, uh, and so for a long time, it wasn't so much that I didn't pay close, it wasn't so much that I, I, I didn't, that I sort of read you know, slavery and, and that kind of thing out of the Civil War, but I didn't pay attention to it. Uh, I didn't think seriously about the causes for which um, the Union and Confederate armies uh, contended, and uh, and I and I certainly accepted sort of the um, the usual view one got in the uh, in the South of Southern Unionists, you know, as being you know, scalawags and traitors and and so forth. And it really wasn't until I was well into my adult years that uh, I really kind of you know reevaluated that. Um, and I think it, and I think what it, what you know what took place even before that was a kind of a, a, a slight shift in sort of my gut level sympathies, not so much to you know to reject you know, the, the, the Confederate side of the house, but more to to embrace and understand uh, the value of the uh, uh, the Union armies and and particularly the cause for which they were contending. So yeah, over time, uh, my thinking has, has shifted a, a bit. Now that that's. Uh... It's funny. I feel like I've, uh, to some extent, made a similar journey. Although as a northerner, I never had the same home-based sympathies. But the romanticism of the Confederate cause is very uh, seductive. I think to people who first begin to read about the war, the, the tattered banners, the heroic captains, uh, the underdog uh, fighting. Uh, on the surface, it's a very appealing cause. Uh, and it's not till one studies it more deeply, perhaps, that, that people begin to rethink it. Right, and I guess the thing is, we we're most comfortable thinking of good men as fighting for a good cause, uh, and and bad men fighting for a bad cause. And I guess it's it's 
it's worth bearing in mind, really, that uh, those who fought for the Confederate uh, cause were, you know, were good, uh, you know, valorous, uh, heroic uh, men, and that nevertheless uh, they could find themselves fighting for, um, you know, a cause that whether they fully understood or embraced this or not, you know, was a cause that was devoted to keeping millions of people, um, you know, in, in chains. Let me turn that around the other direction. Uh, if if Confederates, uh, as individuals, tended to be good men who might be fighting perhaps for a bad cause, uh, there's a, a strong traditional view that uh, the Yankees were bad men uh, when you look at the actions they uh, committed in Sherman's March and other places in their treatment of Southern civilians. Uh, that's the subject of, of your book, The Hard Hand of War. Uh, how did Union soldiers treat Southern civilians? Actually, I was kind of surprised when I did the uh, began doing the research on which the hard hand of war was uh, was based because the the prevailing view was and, and I think really remains that the civil war was uh an experience with total war in which the uh the sort of the moral boundaries between um uh, combatants, soldiers on the one hand and civilians on the other were eroded and that uh, Union soldiers, particularly under William T. Sherman and Philip H. Sheridan, you know, played a, a large role in, um, uh, in erasing that, uh, that boundary. And what I found instead as I was doing uh, uh, my research is that uh, that boundary didn't really get uh, erased, certainly not by uh, Sherman's men or Sheridan's men. They wound up pursuing policies that, in terms of southern property, uh, were highly destructive. But we're talking mostly about uh, public property, not private. And to the extent that we're talking about private property, we're talking mostly about um, uh, cotton gins, uh, you know, crops, livestock, uh, oftentimes barns, but not private dwellings and not entire towns and i think that the the sort of the you know the myth that has grown up about what sherman and sheridan's men did is that they you know that they 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 burned homes on a routine basis they destroyed you know entire towns on a routine basis and by and large that just didn't uh, occur in fact if you compare what happened in the american civil war uh to what had gone on previously in european wars in the 1600s and 1700s um or if you look at what uh, um, uh, the United States soldiers were doing at about the same time uh, out west against the uh, the Western Plains Indians, uh, what's, what's striking is the degree is the comparative degree of restraint uh, that you see on the part of federal armies toward Confederate uh, civilians. Let me let me push you on that idea of the Civil War as as not being a total war. Uh, when you talk about the 1600s, the, the Thirty Years' War. Uh, I think historians tend to use that as a, a benchmark of uh, a complete breakdown in the barrier between soldiers and civilians. And after that, we see a reaction in Europe uh, into the, the 18th century uh, in the Age of Reason when there's an attempt to draw a much firmer boundary uh, to make war, uh, not uh, to keep war from imposing itself on the civilian population. And that becomes the new norm, which then breaks down certainly in the 20th century in total war when civilians are targets again. Many historians will argue the Civil War is when that begins to happen. Uh, you're saying it's not, that, that there really is still a bright line between soldiers and civilians at that time. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, I guess the academic in me wants to sort of, you know, endlessly qualify uh, everything I say, and I really want to kind of resist that uh, that temptation. What you know, again, what was striking to me when I looked at, for instance, what went on in in Europe in the 18th century, the 1700s, which is, you know, commonly considered, as you say, to be an era of limited war. Um, that that was the case in terms of the the scope of these wars and the goals of the wars and um, uh, the kinds of battles that were were fought, but the the soldiers that composed European armies during that time period were long term veterans uh, who were just utterly divorced from their societies, uh, you know, uh, uh, in a personal sense, uh, somewhat uh, you know, degraded. Uh, men and when uh, when they were were sent on campaign and had the opportunity uh, to uh, to forage from civilians, which was very much the norm even in the 18th uh, uh, century, uh, they commonly contributed uh, their own you know gratuitous acts of uh, theft, pillaging, um, you know personal assault, rape, and mayhem. Um, and again, you know, I, I would see this as even in the in the 18th century, 18th century Europe, you know, an era of limited war. I don't see this uh, in the American Civil War between Union soldiers and and I, I want to say here white Southern civilians by and large, unless those civilians were understood to be uh, more or less directly involved in guerrilla warfare. Uh, that's a different story. Now, when you talk about personal assaults and rape and sexual abuse uh, of of Southern people, that 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 seems to have occurred, and uh, we have some anecdotal uh, evidence that suggests that it did occur on a fairly routine basis, but against one segment of the Southern population, and that was the African American uh, population. Um, there is a, this tendency uh, to believe that uh, Southern whites were the real racists in American society at that particular time, and that's just simply not the case. Uh, uh, the United States as a whole was a uh, self-consciously racist uh, society in which uh, it was commonly viewed to be a political community of white people in contradistinction to African Americans or Indians and whatnot. And northern whites and southern whites shared a common racism that just took two different forms. In the south, it's a dominative racism whereby southern whites uh, were, were willing to live alongside of African Americans as long as they controlled the terms of uh, on which they lived alongside them, on which they controlled the, as long as they controlled the terms of that interaction. In the North, by contrast, uh, Northern whites were uh, equally, uh, at least equally, uh, antipathetic toward uh, uh, African Americans or racist toward African Americans, but their racism took the form of an aversive racism. They did not want to live in contact with uh, with African Americans. Uh, and so um, it, it surprises some people to hear about it, but uh, but northern soldiers um, could be as exploitative or more so uh, of, uh, Afri- of African Americans in their path uh, uh, than, uh, than 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 southern soldiers were. The uh, that activist Dick Gregory, I think, once said, uh, "Down south, they don't care how close you get, as long as you don't get too big." And up north, they don't care how big you get as long as you don't get too close. Yeah. Uh, and that 20th century attitude you're saying goes back, has its roots in, in pre-Civil War times. Yeah, I think so. And, and you still notice it today. I mean, I, li- I live in Ohio. I've lived in Ohio since uh, the early 1970s. And 
one of the things that I, I, I found very striking when I first moved here to Ohio is that whereas I had gone, whereas I had gone to school with, uh, with African American, uh, students in the South, uh, in the North, uh, the school districts that I was a part were, were essentially lily white and, uh, and, and, uh, and the white students, uh, had an attitude toward African Americans that combined, uh, uh, ignorance and antipathy in about equal proportions. Well, it, anecdotally, having uh, myself moved from the, the north to North Carolina in the last couple of years, uh, I, I concur completely. What strikes me here uh, in the south is the connection, uh, the, the, the individual willingness to interact uh, among the races that you don't see in the north. Yeah. Uh, not that it, it's a, a racial paradise by any means, but there's a, a striking difference in personal interactions. I think that's true, and I think that in... And again, you know, one has to be cautious here, as as in anything. But I, I, I almost feel like the, you know, the the chances for a real rapprochement between uh, African Americans and white Americans are are ultimately, you know, the chances are perhaps greater uh, in 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 the South on the whole than they are um, uh, on the North, uh, because there is that 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 human um, uh, human recognition. Uh, that uh, you know, that that you see in the South that you don't really see uh, as commonly, at least in the North. What about with uh, Union soldiers in the Civil War? My, when I looked at uh, the Union soldiers in the Army of the Ohio, it, it struck me that they began that they they became much more abolitionist as the war went on, uh, as they they had encounters with African Americans, which they didn't have in their normal lives in the North, uh, as they fought through the South, that, that this changed their racial attitudes somewhat. Uh, do you, did you find that? It's an interesting observation, and and uh, and it and it sounds plausible uh, to, to me. Um, I did find that that individual attitudes varied uh, quite a bit, and, and one thing I can definitely say. Is that northern soldiers, as time went on, became more anti-slavery? Yes, yes, I should. But, not yeah. necessarily of course, anti-slavery and abolitionists aren't necessarily the same things. No. Um, an abolitionist would would want not only to see the end of slavery, but would also want to see the elevation of African Americans to political and social uh, equality. And I think that some northern white soldiers made that journey, but I think that most of them. Uh, made a different sort of journey in which they saw that um, that slavery was at the root of the rebellion, and that slavery was a a system of labor that was um, uh, grossly uh, you know unjust and unfair not only to uh, to, to African Americans but more particularly uh, to poor uh, to poor whites. Uh, it's very common for for Union soldiers to go down and 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 pick up on a view of Southern society that that you know that was in which they they sort of divided white Southern society into wealthy planters on the one hand and poor whites uh, on the other with very little. And Mark, we're going to pick up on that in just a minute. Uh, okay. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio.